Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Father, we ask that you would meddle and mix up our hearts and take out the stuff that needs to be uprooted and plant good stuff there. Father, would you do the work of weeding out the unhealthy stuff, and bearing, helping us to bear good fruit. Uh, Father, we ask your spirit to be at work in us, to allow our minds to understand more truly the truth of your word, but also our hearts to embrace more deeply. Uh, Father, your grace and your love for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for those of you that are new this week or have missed a couple weeks, uh, let me tell you kind of where we've been the last few weeks. Two weeks ago, we talked about dating. Last week, we talked about marriage. We're continuing in uh, talking about marriage this week. And uh, we, one of the things we said was that really a healthy uh, relationship is two people running in the same direction at about the same pace and um, deciding to run after God together. So if you've got two people running uh, in the same direction, same pace, and then kind of locking arms and saying, hey, let's run together and make about 70 years of this, chasing after the Lord together, however many he gives us. But when we have the, the same master, we have the same mission, it builds a common ground for us on which to establish the way in which we operate in terms of this relationship and kind of build a life upon. And it's important because we need a, a gospel-centered, uh, God-centered approach to marriage that really drives us and brings us together and unites us around which we begin to operate. And one of the things we said was that for a healthy marriage, you really need to find your identity, your security, uh, your significance, not in your spouse, but ultimately in the Lord. That if you are looking to your spouse to complete you, you're always going to be operating at a deficit because as cool as that dude is, like he is not self-sufficiently able to fill your tank all the time. It's just not, it's going to leave you at a deficit. So we need to build our relationship on the Lord. And that's really what we want to, uh, to be about. And so I say all that because I want you to understand the stuff we talk about today really builds on the foundation we've laid over the last couple of weeks. So if you've missed that, you may need to go back and, and, and lead that. Because one of the things I know about marriage is when we start talking about marriage, all of us are kind of like nerve endings open and exposed. Like it's just not hard for me to make you feel bad. Like, you can shame anyone about marriage. Now, if you've got a perfect marriage, like, you may just want to leave because we're liable to mess it up within the next 30 minutes. But if, if you're like the rest of us and you just know, man, we don't always get this right. We don't always do this the way we ought to. I don't always act as the perfect, romantic, generous, kind-hearted spouse that I'm supposed to act like towards uh, the one that God has given me. Then I want you to know that there is hope for you today. That wherever you've been spiritually, wherever you've been relationally, and God will meet you here, and he, he will begin to build, build in you a new life and a rich life and a deep life, and there's hope for you. So wherever you've been, I want you to know that, that there's grace for you. And yet, as we begin to look at Proverbs, it's interesting, because Proverbs speaks 
pretty clearly about the importance of our beliefs and our behaviors and our attitudes towards shaping the culture of our home. So let's dive in and look. And let me start at Proverbs 24. It's interesting when you look at the book of Proverbs, and hopefully you've got this after lots of weeks in here, but Proverbs really comes at us with this approach of, there's kind of two approaches to life. There's the wise road and there's the foolish road. There's an approach of wisdom that's going to help build your life, and there's an approach of foolishness that will tear your life down. And and we're really going to take that same approach as we dive in today and look at Proverbs, because what we see in Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4 says, by wisdom a house is built. And by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. By wisdom, a house is built up. It's strengthened. And that's not talking about about bricks and mortar. It's talking about your beliefs and your attitudes and your behaviors that really build up the the home in which you live. And and it's interesting to me when you think about it's, it's you that have to build your house. What he's saying is your, your, your family's stability and your family's joy is going to be largely dependent upon the way in which you build, the, the culture which you establish within your home for good and for bad. The culture of a home largely depends on the way in which you, you build. And so we want to build wisely. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to take the, I've always been told if you've got good news and bad news, start with the bad news first. So we're going to start with the bad news. So here's what I want to do. I want to start off and, and I, I read Proverbs really four or five times this summer. And as I did that, a couple of the times I went and said, you know, every verse I see in here that deals, somehow connects with dating or marriage, I'm just going to write down. And I did that. So we've kind of grouped this and taken 25 years of pastoring and marriage myself. And, uh, and then just said, what do we need to look at and say, what are the, the foolish ways we try to build? And then, then we're going to come back around and look at the wise ways we try to build. And, and I, I just know that each of us has some areas we need to work on. So one of the things I hope for you is that as we listen today, that there'll be some places that when you start to feel that little whatever it is in here that you go, oh, that feels a little uncomfortable, that maybe you just write that down and at the end of our time, you'll come back to that and you'll just lay that before the Lord and ask him to work in that area of your life. And so um, I get it. I know this can be hard sometimes when we dive into marriage. I think there's also some really good stuff we're gonna, we're gonna look at, but... You know, for my wife and I, it's interesting. We, uh, we're, we've been married 25 years. Uh, we're trying to figure out when we're going to do our 25th anniversary trip, but just being totally honest, I've got a little trepidation about it. There's part of me that's excited about it, but when we went on our 20th anniversary trip, we actually had one of our three worst fights ever. So I'm just saying, like, this is the way life works, right? This is the way marriage is. Like, we're here celebrating this great milestone. We've got this incredible trip. We've got all this wonderful stuff planned, and we're duking it out on this thing. On This is not what I had in mind for this trip. And so I just, I say that to say, uh, you're invited in to being an imperfect, having an imperfect marriage and saying, man, God, where do you want to press on me a little bit here? And where do you want to shape us a little bit here? And so let's dive in and look. Uh, so five things, here's what I've called the, the foolish things that we talk about. Five things that kill intimacy of marriage. Um, and the first one is a hothead. And conflict is a part of every marriage. You put two sinners in a room and they'll find something to butt heads over. It's not hard to find a place where you're going to uh, bump up against someone when you're in, in talking about marriage. When you enter into a relationship where you take two broken people and put them in close proximity all the time, they're going to find a way to have some conflict. Here's the thing. Conflict's not always bad. 
In fact, conflict really is an opportunity. I know some of you hate it, but conflict surfaces differences in us. Conflict reveals ways for us to get to know someone in a little bit different way. Conflict is something that opens up an opportunity for you to move into a deeper understanding and connection with someone. But most of us like to avoid it because it's not much fun. And the reason is because we don't always fight fair. And when we don't fight fair, bad stuff tends to happen. And we, it's interesting, we have all kinds of phrases for angry people. Uh, think about just all the little catchphrases in our society. That, man, he's a hothead. Uh, he has a short fuse. He blew his lid. He's going ballistic. Uh, we're probably trying to minimize the pain of it all by coming up with some clever phrase to talk about someone who's just angry. It's interesting to know that Proverbs really shoots pretty straight and doesn't really pull any punches. Proverbs eleven seventeen says, a man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. See, in your anger against others, you, you ultimately hurt your family and you hurt your spouse, but you also do damage to yourself because you're, you're robbing yourself of joy. You're robbing yourself of connection. You're robbing yourself of the ability to enjoy everything that God intends you to enjoy in that relationship. It, uh, there's some funny ones to me. I've always laughed at some of these in Proverbs as well. And uh, I think Proverbs has got some tongue in cheek comments. Proverbs 21, 19 says, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. <laughs> there you go. But he's saying it's better to be without protection, without provision in a place where you're all alone than to be stuck with someone who's angry all the time and harping on you. That's not a good place to be. Another one, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. He's saying there, there's nothing, like you can't go to a quarreling person who's looking for a fight all the time and tell them to stop it because it, it isn't gonna go away. You know, it's like fighting the wind. Like there's, there's no way to make it stop if someone's determined to find a problem. But it's interesting biblically, what you see is that, that one, there are people who seem to always be upset, always fearful, always worried, always angry, always looking for a fight. And it just doesn't take hardly anything to set them off. And um, there's always something to fight about, but there's still a better choice. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. Friends, can I encourage you, don't sweat the small stuff. And most of the fights that Dan and I have gotten into, if you asked me a week later, I couldn't even tell you what they were about. I don't even know what started the whole thing. I just know I wanted my way and she wanted her way, and we were going to go at it until one of us won, or neither of us. So be it. Yeah. Nine times out of ten, though, you can overlook small slights and disagreements. Like the little things your spouse does to you and you're like, oh, there was a little bit of attitude in that. And you're gonna, now you're gonna bow up and go with them about this stuff. And nine times out of 10, you could just let it go. You could overlook it. Just because someone throws you an emotional grenade doesn't mean you have to pull the pin. It's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Even when you've been offended, been, been offended even when you're right because they've done something wrong. Do you know it's okay just to let it go and move past it? It's okay to just go, you know what? I'm going to trust that that's not really about me. They're having a bad day, and I'm going to just absorb that out of grace and out of love for them and sacrificially um, just love them for even where they are. In fact, it says it's to your credit and to your character when you don't react, but make a choice not to take on an offense. And just because someone throws an offense your way, you don't have to load it up on your back and carry it around for the next week with a silent treatment or something else. 
So it's interesting uh, with Scripture, the first you see is hothead. I think related to this is the second thing that kills intimacy in marriage, which is a negative mouth. Uh, Communication is an important part of marriage, uh, but there's a way to communicate that creates distance and tension rather than connection and closeness. And uh, when you look at Scripture's uh, Proverbs really straightforward about this, and I call it the negative mouth. And in fact, this, this theme shows up over and over and over in the book of Proverbs. And really, it's just talking about someone whose words and whose tone uh, come at you in a way that continually drags everyone down. Proverbs twenty one twenty three says, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Men, don't you know what that's talking about? Like if you just shut up, you probably avoid living being in the doghouse right? But there's times when all of a sudden you open your mouth just a little bit and it's like, and stuff starts going and you're like, oh, this isn't going to end well. And you know it, but you can't get them back because you, you opened your mouth already. Uh, I think there's funny ones here in Proverbs 2. Uh, Proverbs 18, 18.6 says, a fool's lips walk into a fight. I think it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, doesn't it? Hey, have you heard the one about a fool's lips walk into a fight? Um, it, you open your mouth and you're instantly just stepping into a combat zone, that you're creating a problem for yourself. Uh, it's interesting that your mouth can be positive or negative. Proverbs 15, 4 says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. It's a tree of life, dude. It provides protection, provides provision for you. A gentle tongue can be like a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Life-giving words are, are, are a blessing to your family, but a constant negative talk is just a beatdown. Uh, that's the official translation. That's the Hebrew there. As I said, it breaks the spirit of those around you. And someone who's just negative, it's coming out, their, out of their mouth all the time, and the tone and the attitude and the words are negative. It just begins to weigh down everyone around them with the way in which they talk. But the other side is, there's a way in which you can build up. So the one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You can choose your words that harm or words that heal. Let's use them wisely. Another thing that kills intimacy in marriage is a stack of plastic. You know what I mean by plastic? How many cards do you have in your wallet? You got, you got a stack of plastic cards, of credit cards that you're running. I, it's funny, I, this week I realized that image or that, uh, that may not really be accurate anymore. Did you hear about the new Apple card? What's it made out of? Titanium. Well, there went that whole illustration of plastic cards. I don't even, I'm have to come up with something different there. But what does the scripture say? And why, why do I reference this? Because I think the, the point still holds true that finances are a common area of conflict in marriage. And when we live beyond our means, it's going to create additional stress and tension for all of us. And Proverbs speaks to that. Proverbs 13, 7 says, One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. You see this idea a lot in Proverbs. It's talking about living beyond your means, that you're pretending to have more than you do. You're a $50,000 millionaire. Like you're living, you've got a certain amount of paycheck, but you're living and having the appearance of having a paycheck that's significantly higher than the one that you actually bring in. And that creates a problem because now you're chasing down the thing that you need, that you're pursuing in terms of your finances. You've set a standard that you can't uphold. Proverbs 12, 9 says, it's better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. You notice how image-driven it is to play the great man, to pretend that you have more than you really have. And what happens is you're always stressed about bills. You're 
still trading up for a nicer neighborhood. You feel guilty about not giving to the church, um, but you can't because you're paying 19% on three credit cards, which means you're constantly doing this. And then the, the bills start coming in the mail and you start to feel the pressure every time you go to the mailbox of the bills that come. And now you're going to start doing a, a little bit of a, a shuffle and a dance of a card game, trying to move credit from one place to another to another, chasing it down month to month. And then what tends to happen in a marriage is at some point someone says something angry. Well, if you just made more and you say something about the earning power of the other, and it's like, well, if you just spent less and you say something about the spending habits of the other, and now those words are out and there's harm that's done, and every time those bills come, you hear echoes of those words that come through. And every time that paycheck comes, you feel an echo of your insufficiency. And it's because you put too much weight and pressure on a financial system you couldn't sustain. So Proverbs gives us wisdom and says, it's better to live below your means and actually enjoy one another than to live beyond your means so that others are impressed by you. So another thing that brings, uh, kills intimacy in marriage is a bottomless glass. Proverbs 23 says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to dry mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red and it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. And later it says, you will say, when will I wake up? I must have another drink. An adder is a, is a venomous viper. It is saying that you can lull yourself to sleep and then you get stung on the backside when you least expect it. You're, when you don't have self-control in this area, what he's saying is you're, you're you're vulnerable, and you're at risk. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the scriptures, it's not saying that all drink is bad. And in fact, I mean, we've got communion wine here in this room, so we're not opposed to any, uh, any imbibing. If uh, you look at, we're going to look at 1 Timothy this fall, and as you look at 1 Timothy, Paul actually tells Timothy, hey, go get a little wine for your stomach, it'll help you out. And so you see in Scripture, there's not this fear factor of being horrified about any kind of alcohol or drink or anything like that, but there is an obvious commitment to moderation. And the problem is when you have a glass that doesn't have a bottom in it, then one glass can become three to four glasses regularly. And a couple nights a week can become every night, and you can begin to get yourself into a bad place. What overdrinking does in a marriage is, is it creates isolation that you either are medicating your hurt so that you're emotionally not really connecting with your spouse or you're falsely propping up your emotions and, and presenting a false self to your spouse, but you're not connecting fully as the two of you really are. And so it becomes something that drives a wedge between you because they're not getting the full you. Friends, can I just say, if you need help, ask someone for help. And we want to be a church where we're authentic followers of Jesus. And part of that means this is a safe place to come and share your burdens with others. And we will come up under those. We'll walk with you. We've got friends in this room that are, that are going through that journey right now. And so, man, don't hold that in if you're struggling. Come and talk to us. Talk to your group leader. Talk to a buddy. Surround yourself with people that will walk with you, and we will bear burdens alongside you. Uh, the fifth thing that kills intimacy in marriage is a wandering eye. Here we're talking about unfaithfulness. Proverbs 27 says, like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. They're, they're, you're intended to, to have a home where the, 
where you're together and where you enjoy one another and where you, where you constantly come home to a refuge. But whenever you wander from the nest, you begin to open up yourself to um, all kinds of danger. Can I tell you how an affair starts? An affair almost never starts off sexually. An affair typically starts off uh, by failing to cultivate the relationship at home. That there begins to be distance at home. There begins to be a pulling away and a separation and isolation. That You stop fully resolving conflict. You start allowing something to drive a wedge between the two of you. And so distance begins to get created. And in the void of that distance that's now created, you begin to try to fill that gap with something else. And as you think about this, what happens is you begin to look elsewhere. You let your eyes and your mind and your heart wander. And so you're at the office or you're at some other venue and all of a sudden someone starts to take notice of you. They start to give you a little tension. They, they laugh at your jokes. They appreciate the way in which you handle a situation. They acknowledge the goodness that you bring to the table. And in the midst of that, you start finding a ways to go, well, that felt good. I'll just spend a little more time there because that was giving and then there's life giving. And now all of a sudden you've opened up a little bridge to connect with someone that's not your spouse in order to have that person affirm you in a way that your spouse is really the only one that's supposed to affirm you, and you're on a path to trouble. Proverbs 6 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense, and he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and disgrace will not be wiped away. Friends, nothing will devastate your marriage like infidelity. In a moment, you can undo years of togetherness, and it will take decades to rebuild the heartbreak. Friends, don't, don't give in. And it starts with fighting for your spouse and fighting for the marriage and the relationship that you have. And so don't give in to the temptation that comes your way sometimes. I tell you the only way out of trouble. Proverbs 16.6 6 tells us what it is. It says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. I mean, when you've blown it, it's repentance. It's grace. It's restoration, and then it's rebuilding trust. And so if you've been down that road, there's, there, there is no way to come clean but to repent, to, to come and lean on the grace of God and ask forgiveness from your spouse, and then to be restored and to, be, and to begin to rebuild the relationship. That's the path that the Scriptures lay out for us. So, man, those are the five things that really kill intimacy in marriage. Um, had enough of that? Some heavy stuff, isn't it? But I'll just tell you, as a pastor who walks alongside people, I see what happens when those five things get their way. I see the, the devastation in families and relationships and marriages that happen when we continually build a house not built on wisdom, but built on foolishness, as Proverbs calls it. So let's go the other way. Let's look at six things that build intimacy in marriage. The first is strengthen your confidence in God. Proverbs 14, 6, 26, and I love this verse. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Uh, this, this idea of the fear of the Lord shows up all through Proverbs and we come back to it over and over. The fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom, that the beginning of the wise life is to, to have a relationship of worship with the creator of the universe, the God who made you, the one who loves you, and the one who sent his son for you. And as you understand what it means to live before a holy God who gives you a holy standard that you can never meet, but receives you as a friend, even in the midst of your failure, 
then your heart overflows in worship and gratitude because of his grace and because of his care for you. And you notice what it says that that gives you. It gives you a strong confidence. You see how fear of the Lord and strong confidence are connected? See, if you've got a right relationship with the Lord, you have nothing to fear of men. If you have a strong relationship with the Lord, there is strength that comes your way that allows you to stand and enter into and do the things you need to do and, to, and are called to do. But Proverbs 14, 26 doesn't stop there. It says, and his children will have a refuge. Men, if you, if you stand in the strength of the Lord, it will provide strength for your kids to walk up under because they understand the covering that they have in a healthy, in a healthy parent system and family system. And so there's, when it's built on, when it's built on God, on, on the truth of who God is and the grace of who God is, then it's going to give strength to our families. We love because he first loved us. When you're completely confident in the goodness and the grace of God, it will change you and it'll change your relationships. And it will give you a, a strength and a strong foundation to stand on. And in marriage, when both parties are trusting the fear of the Lord and they're worshiping him and they're leaning on him. And so they're secure in, in their relationship with him and they know who he is and they know that that's where the ultimately, that he's their master and that's where their life source comes from. Then it's gonna free us up to serve one another, to love one another, to give one another and sacrifice for one another. So when you walk with God, uh, what I think part of what it's saying is you're free to walk without worry. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God that you, you don't have to walk in shame or in fear when you're truly walking with the Lord. Commentator Derek Kidner says, godliness protects us since evil not only attacks, but attracts us. Therefore, the man of God must know and show his family something stronger and better. See, the wise man lives for something greater than self-absorbed short-term satisfaction. Live for something bigger than simply getting your needs met in the short term. Live for something stronger than that, and that will trickle down to your wife, to your family, to everyone else. So the first thing is strengthen your confidence in God. Another way to build intimacy in marriage is study yourself. This idea shows up throughout church history, but uh, we also see kind of the simple idea. If you get on an airplane, and what's the first thing the stewardess always says? That if the plane's going down, the oxygen mask drops, what are you supposed to do? Put the mask on yourself first and then help others. When I was in lifeguard training, one of the things they told us was, uh, you, can't help, you can't help rescue someone else if you're drowning yourself. And so as you're going to try to help someone else and assist them, you really have to beware of your own environment, your own self, because as long as you're in danger, you're, you can't be a, an aid to someone else. And so take care of yourself, make sure you're in good place, then go assist someone else. The principle I think is true as well. You can't love your spouse well if you're not taking care of your own, your own spiritual life and your own health. And so we see uh, in <clears throat> Proverbs, I'll um, also talk some about this. In church history, you see this. Augustine says, let me know myself and let me know you, O Lord. Calvin says, nearly all wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. We need to understand and have some self-awareness about us to know how it is that we can love well our spouses. And Proverbs 25 says, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. When we have to know what's going on inside us. And for some of us, especially us dudes, um, or, or uh, kind of you, you type A ladies that want to run and run and run, and you got your task list, you got all that other stuff, you want to run and stay busy. 
so that you can avoid actually looking here. We talked about this in the sinkhole syndrome a few weeks back, but um, we've got to know what's going on inside of us and, and what's going on in our lives in order to know how it is we can walk well with the Lord. Uh, one of the things that can uh, limit us in terms of this is just being self-absorbed. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. See, self-awareness is not self-absorption. Those two are different. You need, we need to know what's in our hearts. You need to know what you need to confess. You need to know what needs to be changed. You need to know where the, your emotions are, are tossed around, where you feel shame, where you feel guilt. And you need to allow those things to surface places that you can take to the Lord and learn to trust Him in the midst of all those things. You need to know where, what sets you off. You need to know what's a healthy pace for you to live. You need to know what, uh, where you need accountability from friends and from your group of people that can encourage you and all these things. Take time to do your heart work. Proverbs says, a joyful heart is good medicine. Another place it says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. See, when our hearts are in a healthy place, it flows out. We live out of our hearts towards others. And when our hearts are in a good place, that breathes life into those around us and into our relationships. So first, study yourself. Secondly, or thirdly, study your spouse. Uh, Proverbs 20, 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. And friends, God gave you ears to listen, and God gave you eyes to observe. So watch your spouse. Listen to your spouse. Get to know them. Investigate your spouse. Not looking for something wrong. You know what that is. You can pull that list up easy. But looking to uncover who they really are. What does it look like for you to be Sherlock Holmes to the spouse that God has given you? looking for clues and hints of who they are under the surface, exploring everything you can get to know about what makes them tick, learn what fears and desires she has, discover what hurts and habits are frustrating to him or her right now. Uh, interesting question I saw someone ask was, are you as attentive to your spouse's needs as you are to their errors? And it's easy to catalog all the places where they blow it. Are you as attentive to the things that they need as you are to the places where they make mistakes? Work harder at ministering to your spouse than manipulating your spouse. Serve them where they are. Fourth thing, uh, builds intimacy in a marriage. Guard your oneness. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. I've said it before, the first step in a sinful direction is isolation. You pull away from your spouse, you pull away from spiritual friends, you pull away from spiritual community. I've seen it a thousand times. That when people begin to pull out of their spiritual community, their, their heart is shifted and they're beginning to move in a direction that's unhealthy. Do not move in a direction of isolation, but in your marriage as well as in your relationships, guard the oneness, the togetherness, the sense of, of interdependence on one another. Uh, Proverbs actually talks about a broken marriage vow as a sin against an old companion in Proverbs 2. But it's important to remind ourselves that uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, Proverbs 18 says. Marriage is a good thing. And it's a place where it goes on and says, and obtains favor from the Lord. God has blessed us and called it good. Let's guard it and protect it and watch over it and not allow it to become something where we're isolated. Uh, connected to oneness, spiritual, relational, emotional, physical, all that. Guard your oneness is physical intimacy. And the fifth thing that builds intimacy in marriage is commit to physical intimacy. Uh, that seems silly in our world that's so sex-ravaged to have to say, 
but I think it's important. Uh, Proverbs 5 highlights this, and I've read this a couple weeks ago as we talked about dating. Uh, Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always with her love. You know, Proverbs, uh, Song of Solomon elsewhere in the scriptures talks about uh, the physical intimacy that we have, but how that goes together with spiritual, relational, emotional intimacy, and those really are meant to be intertwined. And so it says, do not arouse or awaken until love until it so desires in Song of Solomon, meaning and don't arouse the physical intimacy until the spiritual, relational, emotional catches up and you've, you've brought those together so that whenever the foundation has been built and you've got a holistic relationship, then enter into marriage and enter into the physical union that you're meant to have. And then the scriptures say, be intoxicated with a love and go enjoy it. Make, make, just have a blast. Have a lot of fun. Here's what's, ha- what's interesting. In dating, you're having to really hold back and restrain. It's all you can do to keep from escalating that and, and moving the physical ahead of the spiritual, emotional, and relational. There's a shift that happens when you move into marriage. When you move into marriage, the physical actually becomes a barometer of the spiritual, relational, and emotional. And it actually reveals where the rest of your relationship is. So friends, here's what I want to tell you. A lot of you need to have more sex. And I don't say that flippantly, but I, I just think it's biblical. In fact, there's places in the scriptures where it says, don't withhold sex from one another except for a short time because you're devoted to prayer and fasting. So if you're not devoted to prayer and fasting in a time that you've decided, then you ought to be having sex. We need to commit to physical intimacy. Why? Because in order in the context of marriage to enjoy one another fully, as this talks about, part of what it's saying is you're going to have to be spiritually, emotionally, relationally connected in order to give yourself physically to your spouse. So friends, we we need to be physically engaged because it reveals something about the rest of our lives. And so that is an encouragement to you. Um, I I hope that you will go and do uh, as the scriptures teach. (laughs) Sixth, leave a legacy of grace. Friends, it's important that we remember that we're fighting for generations that follow. And there's a lot of legacies you can leave. You can leave a legacy of beauty. You can leave a legacy of physical physical prowess and stories of the glory days. You can leave a legacy of wealth, of social strata. You can leave a legacy of success, of intellect. You can also leave a legacy of a spiritual heritage that's built upon the love and the grace of God and the truth of his word. Let that be the thing that guides us. Grandchildren are crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. And we're intended, as Psalm says, to shoot our kids like arrows out into the world, that they're on mission to to make a mark in this world for the glory of God. And so we want to raise them up, train them up, send them out, and allow them to teach their kids to do the same thing. I don't know where your family's been. I don't know where your history has been. But you could be the one that begins a legacy that says we want to pass down a healthy, godly Uh, legacy to our kids that's built on the truth of God's word and the grace of God's son. Um, Let that be the thing that drives us always. Well, friends, I hope I stepped on at least one toe uh, because we all need work. We've all got places where we need to grow. We've all got things that the spirit wants to take the truth of God's word in Proverbs. And man, I know I threw a ton out today. Here's what I hope for you. I hope you'll take a minute as we begin to move towards communion and that you're going to stop. And I, I want you just to sit where you are. 
And if you need to close your eyes so that you're not distracted by those around you. But I just want you to ask the Lord and say, Lord, what is it I need to know? Do I need, do I need to confess something? Do I need to let go of something? Do I need to lay something down? Do I need to take hold of a truth? Do I need to take hold of a grace? Do I need to trust your love is and, and really live kind of more in the fear of the Lord and confidence in his goodness? What is the thing that God would direct you to as we've studied, or that God's kind of been directing you to as we've studied his word this morning? Let me pray for us. Father, we do know that marriage is a gift. It is a beautiful and wonderful thing that you've given us relationships that are intended to be places of great joy, places that give life, places that give strength and security to us. Yeah, Father, I know that there's some here who are still wounded and walking through hard relationships that have been broken in the past. I know that there are some whose relationships may be hanging in the balance even now. Father, I know that just in the seasons of life, not all of them are joyful. Father, I pray your mercy upon those that are in a tough season. Father, I pray your unity and your togetherness over those who are drifting towards isolation. Would you draw them together? Father, would you remove any barriers between any husbands or wives in this room? Would you bring them to a place of togetherness and oneness in every way? Father, for those who are in a good place, would you just remind them that that joy was of your design, that that goodness was of, of your mind? And Father, help them just to live worshipfully out of gratitude for the gift that you've given them. Father, we pray it in Christ's name and by your spirit. Amen.